This morning I want to start a new series entitled, Jesus Said What? You know, when you read the New Testament, uh, you come across things and you just kind of look at them. And I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, and so it's got to be true, it's got to be good, and we can't just leave it out because we believe all the Bible is true. But when you look at it, you say, now, now what did Jesus say? And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of those teachings of Jesus, some of those hard sayings, some of those challenging sayings that Jesus says that are so countercultural, so opposite of what we would expect Jesus to say. But nonetheless, they're the words of Christ, and they are very true and very helpful in our life. Take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be at verse 28 and 29. That's the root text for us today. In this brief time of teaching on earth, Jesus often said things that were shocking to his listeners. Things that are shocking to today's readers of Scripture that we find difficult to understand. The words themselves may be disconcerting to hear, but the reasoning behind them and the clarification of their meaning and the application to our lives reinforces the intent of a very good and gracious God who wants you to live the best life possible. This morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, 28 and 29. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Now, as we look at this text, uh, 1 John 1, 7, don't turn there, but just listen to it. These words are comforting to us. It reminds us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, that there is forgiveness from every single sin. But this potentially confusing passage can be unsettling to read, and the expectation of this unpardonable or unforgivable sin has been a stumbling block for many. Let's look at 28 and 29. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. That's kind of heavy. I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a little bit harsh. But what did you mean? Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Many atheists and Christians alike have seen this passage of Scripture, and it appears to be conflicting with other portions of Scripture, and it can be a stumbling block to their understanding or even accepting of the faith. What is the unforgivable sin? Why is this sin any different from the others talked about in Scripture? How can I know for sure if I've committed this unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Well, let's start with this first question. What is the unforgivable sin? According to Mark 3, 28 and 29, as well as other similar passages, Matthew 12, 22 through 37, Luke 12, 10, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. So what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Simply put, it's this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a set attitude of rejection of the Holy Spirit's power, Holy Spirit and His power, attributing evil motives in the working of God's Spirit. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's this set attitude of rejection that is key to the understanding of this passage. Blasphemy, simply put, jot this down, it is rejection of the Holy Spirit. 
I refuse to receive the Holy Spirit. You see a number of passages there talking about this rejection of the Holy Spirit. Why is this sin of rejection of the Holy Spirit or blasphemy any different than any other sin? Now listen closely. This is key for us today. The reason the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven is not because God is unwilling or unable to forgive. Instead, those who persist in the godless attitude stubbornly refuse to repent. That's the key. The key to the the heart of what Jesus is teaching here is not so much in what God can't or won't do. It's in what the individual says, I won't do. I won't receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I won't listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, passages of Scripture, like the ones I've talked about, each time they talk about this unforgivable sin, they have one thing in common in each of these passages. They portray people who knowingly persist in rejecting Christ as the Messiah. Even despite Jesus' miracles and ministering his power through the Holy Spirit, they still refuse to accept him. Now the Pharisees, mentioned by Matthew, they militantly, they hated Christ, and they attributed his miracles to works of demons. Unlike those who are afraid that they've committed some unpardonable or unforgivable sin, these Pharisees were totally unconcerned about Christ's forgiveness. Instead, with premeditation, with persistence, they willfully blasphemed the Holy Spirit's testimony that Christ was the Son of the living God. Now those who Scripture points out as committing the unforgivable sin show no godly regret for their sin. Paul emphasizes this in the book of Romans, Romans 1:32, they not only continue in their evil ways, but approve of others who do so as well. But the flip side is found in 2 Corinthians 7:10. Godly sorrow, however, brings repentance that leads to salvation. See, this was the attitude of the apostle Peter. He had sorrow for his sin and a desire for Christ to forgive him. This was the proof positive that he had not rejected the Spirit's power in his life. See, Peter denied the Lord, denied Christ with vile oaths three times, and yet Christ forgave him. Paul, who persecuted Christians with a great passion, he even called Christ's followers blasphemers of God, and yet when he encountered God on the road to Damascus with godly sorrow in his heart, God forgave him. God did a miracle in his heart, and he had repentance And God brought salvation to him. See, this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's more of a spiritual state of mind than a single action. So how do you know if you've committed this unforgivable sin? This is key for somebody today. If you are truly concerned that you have committed the unforgivable sin, rest assured you have not. If you are worried that you have gone so far that God can't forgive you, you're worried that God won't forgive you, rest assured you are not, because the only sin that God won't forgive is is the sin that you won't confess. It's not some act, it's not some deed that, well, if you cross this line, that's too much for God, that's too hard for God. No, God says when you come with godly sorrow, you repent. I'm not just sorry that I got caught. I'm not just sorry I'm in a jam, but I confess. I say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. I repent. I want to turn the other direction. He is faithful to forgive. 
I want to extend hope today that there is no sin that God won't forgive. But unfortunately for many, there are many sins that we will not choose to confess or repent from. When we resist the move of the Holy Spirit in our life, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And as long as we stay in that sinful mind and say, God, I want nothing to do with what you're saying to me. I don't want to listen to you. God will respect your devastating decision and cannot forgive the sin that you and I will not confess. Well, why then did Jesus say this? If that's what this means, why would Jesus talk about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I believe, friend, because he wants us to know how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in our life, in our relationship with the Lord. See, however, just because you're not guilty of the unpardonable or unforgivable sin, it does not mean that you are in right relationship with God. We need to hear that again. Just because you've not gone so far that God can't forgive you doesn't mean that you are in right relationship with God. You need to be actively pursuing what it is he is calling you to. You see, it's not enough just to know intellectually that Jesus Christ is the Savior. It's not enough just to believe that God exists or to believe that Jesus exists. Even the demons believe and they tremble, James 2.19 tells us. To have that knowledge is good, but it must be added with agreement and trust in God. You see, if you are sick and, and what illness you have, if there's a medicine that can bring a cure to that illness, it does you no good to believe that that medicine exists. I mean, it's good to know that medicine exists, but it does you no good. You could have faith and confidence that that medicine has cured hundreds or thousands of other people, but it does you no good just to believe it exists or to believe that it's worked for somebody else until you personally take or receive that medicine. It does nothing for you. I've been on the blessing, benefit, receiving side of antibiotics this week. Oh, they are a wonderful thing. I mean, you can feel nasty on Tuesday, and by Sunday you feel great. And, and it would be one thing to say, well, I believe that antibiotics can, can kick something out of my system. It would be another to say, well, I've seen many people who have benefited from that, but I have to actually ingest and take in the antibiotics for it to do my body any good. It's the same thing here. To receive Jesus Christ as the living Lord of your life is the only way. It's an imperative for us to have a relationship with him. We need to recognize that we are a sinner to repent of our sin and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Friend, if you're here today and, and you have not done that, today could be the best day of your life. There is no sin that you have committed. There is no line that you have crossed that's too far for God. If you desire to be right with God, to have forgiveness in your heart, today is the day when you confess your sin today. You repent and say, God, I don't want to live that way anymore. And let him be Lord or in charge of your life. He will forgive your sin. I want to encourage you, don't let this morning go by without you responding to an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Church, I believe that is true with all of my heart, and I believe that many of you would testify to that as well. In fact, I think an overwhelming majority in this room today would testify to experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life. An overwhelming majority of people would, would look at a teaching like this and say, you know what, I don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And we kind of sit back and kind of just judge those blasphemers. Those people who reject the Holy Spirit. 
preach it, pastor. Tell them. They need to confess their sin, dirty, rotten blasphemers. But see, this is just the beginning. God wants to not only free us from, from rejecting his Holy Spirit, but I believe that there are people who have received Jesus, who have given their life to him, who have had a relationship with Jesus, and they don't reject the Holy Spirit in their life, but they live as if they are indifferent to the Holy Spirit. Oh, they've asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, but, but they don't live in dependence on the Holy Spirit. They don't live in, in any kind of awareness of the Spirit's power in their life. They live completely indifferent to the Holy Spirit. I believe God is calling us to be free from rejecting of the Holy Spirit and free from our indifference to the Holy Spirit. How often do our actions appear to be indifferent to the Spirit of God? We try to live the Christian life and and we do it in our own strength despite what Scripture tells us. John 16, 13 and 14 says this, The Spirit will guide you into all truth. And yet, Christian, when you find yourself in a situation where you need wisdom, where you need truth, you say, well, surely my stellar Bible study skills are going to get me through this one. Your skills stink. Surely my good attendance pattern at the second service at Grace Point is going to be worth something. That stinks. Well, surely the the spiritual gifts that God has given me is going to give me some kind of insight into truth in my life. Hey, friend, in comparison, that means nothing. Look what Scripture says. What is it? The Spirit will guide you into all truth. Without the Spirit of God in your life, there is no victory. You will miss what it is that God wants to do. Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. You ever feel like you're lacking power in your spiritual life? You're lacking the Spirit of God. You ever feel like you don't have the truth? You're lacking the, the authority or the anointing in your life? The Spirit of God brings the truth in all situations. He brings the anointing. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by strength or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Jot this down. It is impossible to live a victorious life. It's impossible to live a victorious Christian life and be indifferent to the Holy Spirit. You can't have victory in your life if you're living and you're just kind of, uh, I guess the Spirit of God somewhere. Uh, sure, I, I believe the Holy Spirit exists. That's good. I believe in the Trinity and all that stuff. If you are indifferent to the Holy Spirit, you will never have victory in your life as a Christian. Jesus' warning against blasphemy tells us the seriousness of the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit. But just because we're not actively rejecting the Holy Spirit does not mean that we are sincerely trusting the Lord Jesus Christ with leadership in our life. God is calling us to not only be free from rejecting the Holy Spirit, but free from indifference to the Holy Spirit. I may have shared this story with a few, but it bears repeating. I had a neighbor in Kansas City when I lived there. His name was Frank, and Frank shares this story in one of his books, a real-life example that Frank experienced when he lived in Cincinnati. My neighbor Frank tells this story, and he's in Cincinnati, and in his neighborhood there was this lady who would walk the sidewalk every single day at the same time, and she would carry this bag with her, and they affectionately called her the bag lady because they didn't know her name. And she would walk up and down the sidewalk and she would gather all the trash from the neighborhood and she'd put it in their bag, in her bag. And then she'd go back into her house and nobody would talk to her or see her until the next day when she'd go on her walk. 
And the neighbors were excited. She picked up trash, and they didn't know much about her, and she didn't cause any problems. So she was just kind of a fixture there in that neighborhood, in that community. And day in and day out, she would take her walk at the same time and do the same thing and go right back into her house again. One day, the neighbor noticed that the bag lady did not take her walk. And went over and talked to Frank, and Frank said, you know, I didn't see her either. And it was two days, and two days led to three days, and and now they began to get concerned. So they called the police, and they knew that this lady apparently didn't have much family around. And they said, we're concerned about her. She takes her walk every day at the same time. You can set your watch to her pattern, and, and she has not been outside doing her walk, picking up the trash and putting it in her bag and going back into her house. So the police came and knocked on her door, and there was no response. And and with hearing the concern of many of the neighbors, they forced their way in, and they found that she had passed away. To compound that tragedy, they walked in and saw the horror of trash that was piled up all the way, almost to the ceiling, in just about every room. There was just small paths that you could turn and walk through the house, and they began to smell the stench of garbage that had been collected Apparently every day that she had walked the neighborhood streets, she gathered the trash and she put it in her bag and she came and put it in her house. As Frank tells the story, he says, real life, honest to God, this is what happened in my neighborhood. And Frank says, the police saw that the trash in this house was going to attract rodents and, and attract insects and all kinds of problems. So they said, we can't leave this alone. So they found the low man on the totem pole in the police department and said, hey, rookie, it's your job to get this cleaned up. So the dumpster's delivered, and this low man on the totem pole of a cop is there and kind of organizing the cleanup. And I could imagine he's kind of muttering under his breath, this stinks. Rookies shouldn't have to clean up all this stuff. And they're carrying out trash pile after trash pile to the dumpster. And on his way out on one of his trips, his leg brushes up against one of the cushions of the couch. And it just felt weird to him. Enough that he stopped and set down the pile of trash and went over and put his hand on the cushion of the couch and felt it and it was kind of lumpy. And so curious, he unzipped it cautiously, didn't know what he'd find in this house and pulled it back and to his surprise, he pulled out a wad of cash. He unzipped it and he saw the whole couch cushion was stuffed full of cash. Now the countenance on this police officer began to rise and what he thought was a bad job is beginning to look pretty cool. And so he calls some of the guys over and says, you won't believe what I found in this trash heap of a house. And so come help me search. And sure enough, they looked in one couch cushion and the next and the next and in the mattress. And all throughout the house, they found stockpiles of cash in this house. They stacked it up and they counted it. And when they were all done, they found just under $2 million of cash in this lady's house. I'll never forget that story as my neighbor Frank tells that and It reminds me of how many Christians live their life. We live in such close proximity to to tremendous wealth, and yet we surround ourselves with stockpiles of garbage, stockpiles of rotting trash in our life, and we live as if we are destitute and poor when we have so much wealth around us. When we live the Christian life indifferent to the Holy Spirit, we are not tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not tapping into the great wealth of riches that God wants us to have in a relationship with Him. So many Christians, we just gather the trash from our life or the lives of others and we bring it in and we just hang on to it and hoard it and we miss what God wants to do. Friend, God wants to free us from rejecting the Holy Spirit. He wants to free us from being indifferent to the Holy Spirit. And He wants to bless us and allow us to have intimacy with the Holy Spirit. 
I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. I'm not going to take the time to read all those verses, but as I paraphrase some of that, I want you to be able to scan that in your Bible and see this is what God's Word says. I want you to think as you're doing that, who is someone in your life that's a spiritual hero to you? I've never seen a person who was a spiritual hero in my life or a life that was worthy of a godly example who walked at a distance from God. When I think of somebody who's been a a mentor or hero in my life, it's not the people who've been distant from God. It's the people who had great intimacy with God. No doubt that's true in your life, too. Somebody who led you to the Lord or someone that you look up to spiritually, more often than not, that's somebody who has an intimacy or a closeness with God. They're not detached and and distant from God. I'm convinced that God wants us to live in intimacy with Him. In this passage of Scripture, we find that the elements that it takes to have intimacy with God are talked about in the instructions of how to have the tabernacle. I'm convinced that these tabernacle instructions, this old covenant, is preparation for the new covenant, a call to have intimacy with God. We can learn a lot from the tabernacle. God gave specific instructions of how the children of Israel should worship and how to build the tabernacle. He was laying down these ground rules of a relationship with him. He says, this is how I want you to do it. The purpose of that was so that hundreds of years between Moses and the coming of Christ, there would be this worship in the tabernacle and later the temple. And when Christ would come, there would be these categories for interpreting who Christ is and what he did for us that leads to intimacy with God. And so this whole system is given to lay down these basic principles. I wish we had time this morning to walk through each of the pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle, but... We don't have time to do that. I do want us to look at the most holy place and the three elements that are commanded to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. Look at that in the middle of that passage. We see the Ark of the Covenant was kept, in your blank here it says, in the dwelling place of God's presence. It was this Ark, it was this box, it was this thing that was to be kept in the most holy place where they would have intimacy with God, and there was commanded to keep these items in this Ark, in this chest, In the presence of God, God gave very specific instructions. Only the chief priest could enter into the most holy place, and and even then only once a year, and he was entering to the literal presence of God. These three things were there. Now, God commanded these things to be there because God knew they needed physical reminders of who he was, who he had been, and who he would continue to be. The first is manna. It talks about a jar or a pot of manna. When the children of Israel found themselves in the wilderness, you know the story, they had nothing to eat, and so they cried out to God, and God provided manna, this white stuff that, like, I don't know, I imagine like frosted flakes that would fall down to the ground. And, and they would walk around and they'd gather up these white flakes and they would, they would put them in jars and they would collect them. And, and the literal translation, the literal meaning of manna is, is what is it? And so they were going around and they said, get that what is it stuff and and, and gather it. Well, what did you eat today? I had some what is it? I don't know. What did God give you? Uh, Some what is it? I'm not sure. It's this this unknown thing that God gave that was a blessing. It was a resource that fed them. And, and, And God says, in the intimate places, you need to have a jar full of the manna that I have provided. 
God knew that they needed physical reminders of how he had provided for them, things that they didn't understand. They didn't even know what to call it, but they saw God provide for them. This was important for them to have intimacy with the very Spirit of God. The second thing in there was the rod. This rod, this staff that Moses and Aaron had was the very rod that budded before them. It was the rod that had miraculous signs done before Pharaoh. It was the rod that was lifted up that would part the sea. It's the the rod, the staff that would strike the rock and water would come out. And and they said, keep this in the Ark of the Covenant by God's command. And, And it was to remind them this symbolized the very power and the supremacy of God. That there was no other God like their God. His almighty power. And the third thing in that ark was the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the the stone tablets, the Word of God given to them. It was the law of God. It was God's will written down. And, And Scripture talks about the finger of God carving into the stone His law, His will. I used to think that this was kind of an Old Testament thing, but really when Jesus encounters anybody in the New Testament, we begin to see that he does not depart from the law. The law is there and he fulfills the law. The woman at the well, he goes to her and he says, I know all of your sins. There's the law right there. But he doesn't put it on a tablet. He allows the Spirit of God to carve it in on her heart. He speaks to the adulterous woman and he says, go and sin no more. There's the law right there. But he inscribes it on her heart, not a tablet anymore, and says, this is my will. This is my direction. And that is what happens. See, this pattern, this model for intimacy is hanging on to the tangible things that God has provided for us. He has blessed us with the things that we don't understand. Now, I cannot have a manna jar full of things that don't belong in the manna jar. It ceases to be a manna jar. Sometimes we stick things in the manna jar that are really complaints or wishes or hopes that didn't really happen the way we wanted. But God says it's time for you to look in the manna jar and pull out the things of where I've provided Financial miracles in your life where God had provided, you didn't know how it happened. He made it work, and it doesn't make any sense. You honored God with the resources he entrusted to you, and he blessed you. He provided. Some of us need to look in the manna jar, and we need to pull out God's timing. It would never have been our timing. We never, ever would have chosen the timing. But looking back, we can see that God knew exactly what he was doing with his time. He was so faithful Others of us, we can look back to family memories and relationships and possibly remember times where there was a fracture or a problem or a marriage that was awry, but God brought healing and and he provided in that way. The elements to intimacy with God. He says, in my presence, keep a jar of manna. Remember what I have done. Not what you had hoped, not what your complaints are, not what you're frustrated with, but who I have been. He says also keep a symbol of of my supremacy, my authority, my power. Now, Now the problem is you can't hang on to this in your life and say, well, I'm just as good as God. Because the very reason this staff was important was because that this symbolized the almighty power of God. He was sovereign. There was no one who was greater than God. When we want to have intimacy with God, it's acknowledging that He is the greatest in our life. And the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the law, the the Word of God, the Scripture, 
is saying, God, I want you to inscribe on my heart your truth, your word. I don't want to try to pick and choose from what I want it to be, but when I acknowledge who you have been in my life and how you have provided and your supremacy, your authority, and your will in my life, I submit to you there is intimacy there. The whole purpose of Jesus saying, guard yourself from blasphemy against the Holy Spirit You will not be forgiven. Anybody who shuts out the work of the Holy Spirit, it prevents God from forgiving them. Because they've crossed some line? No. Because they have not repented. They won't ask for forgiveness. They don't have a broken and contrite heart. But God goes on and he says, I want to free you not only from rejecting the Holy Spirit, I want to free you from being indifferent. I believe God wants to say, wake up church. You can be saved, and you can be living in poverty. You can be living in trash. You can be living in the filth around you. Well, I'm, I'm in the world. I'm not of it. Good, but you're still downcast. Oh, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your trust in Him. Let the very presence of God rejuvenate you and have intimacy. As we close today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. For some, you may be here and and you are aware, maybe for the first time, or maybe you are at a place where you're ready to respond for the first time. And you know that there's things that you've said and done wrong and those things are sin. If you're here today, this is a place where I'm going to invite you in a moment to come and pray. Well, what will people think of me if I come down and pray? They will think you're making the best decision of your life. But not just those who are coming to ask for forgiveness with a godly sorrow and a broken and contrite heart. I believe there's many here in this room today who'd say, you know what? I know Jesus. He's my Savior. And and I've experienced the move of the Holy Spirit in my life, but I'm feeling kind of dry and crusty. And and I'm wondering if I'm getting kind of indifferent to the, the move of the Spirit of God in my life. I definitely don't feel power. I definitely don't feel the truth in all areas of my life. And, and I need God to rekindle that. I want to invite you in a moment to come and seek God at this place. And, and maybe, symbolically, He wants you to gather up a, a manna jar at this altar and begin as you pray, God, you've been faithful in this area. You've been faithful in that area. You've done it again. And allow Him to cultivate intimacy between you and He. Others, to have intimacy with the Holy Spirit, You're needing to cling on to that rod that symbolizes the authority of God in your life. But to be honest, you're going to have to put down your own control stick. You're going to have to say, God, I need you to be the almighty God that you can bring water from a rock. And that means you need to take the back seat and say, God, I don't have it in me. I'm not in charge. I can't do this. I need you to be all powerful. Others, you've memorized, you've quoted You've read so much scripture, so much law. And Jesus says, let me engrave it on your heart. Let me have intimacy with you. And and each of these items, they bring comfort and they bring correction. If you're here today, don't respond because I'm asking you to. I gave you permission to ignore me many minutes ago. But if God is speaking to you, as we sing this song, I want to invite you to come and seek God and repentance. Come and seek God, saying, God, I want more intimacy with you. Come and just have your own private time of worship, filling your manna jar, recalling what he has done for you. Let's respond as we sing now.